In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents The Things They Carried. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel comic series, The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm taking a break from my coverage of the comic series for one of what will be a series of occasional special episodes. As I mentioned in episode number one, The Nom runs 84 issues plus three stories that are collected in a Punisher trade paperback, but I thought that 87 episodes was not a round enough number, and with so much other popular culture that focuses on the Vietnam War, I thought that I would insert 13 occasional episodes that are on topic, but focus on something else. After all, the time came, the NAM came out at a time when Vietnam was becoming more and more pervasive in American pop culture, uh, and was actually, especially for a comic book, one of the more exceptional pieces. It was at least more exceptionalist than, say, Rambo, First Blood Part Two, which was a jingoistic revenge flick of sorts compared to other more well-known fare like The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Coming Home, or Full Metal Jacket. So I think that it's necessary to take a look at as much of it as I can, or at least what I'd like to over a smattering of episodes, usually between quote-unquote years of the story or different storylines in the comic. So you'll probably hear me get to those movies at one point or another. I may even, if I can get a hold of some episodes, look at television shows like Tour of Duty and China Beach. But tonight I'm going to turn my attention to a book, one that has had a pretty profound effect on me, because without this book, I don't think I would have actually considered buying an issue of the NOM and definitely wouldn't have launched this podcast. The book in question is The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien a writer who is a Vietnam vet and has had a very successful career writing about the war in novels such as If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home, Going After Cacciato, and In the Lake of of the Woods, among others. What I'm going to do is spend the episode talking a little bit about O'Brien himself and his career, as well as go through the entire novel, highlighting especially those portions that I find particularly memorable. But first, I'm going to take a break. So check out this great podcast and come back for more background on Tim O'Brien. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I've been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. 
To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called News from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Tim O'Brien is a Minnesota native, and his hometown, Worthington, is represented in some of his stories, especially, especially those stories in the things they carried that take place when the characters are quote-unquote back in the world, as the lingo goes from reading our nom notes every issue. In 1968, O'Brien was drafted out of college into the Army, serving from 1968 until 1970 in the 3rd Platoon Company A, 5th Battalion, 23rd Infantry Division. I'm honestly not sure if this shares anything with in common with the same 23rd that we are following in the NAM, and if anyone knows anything that might answer that question, feel free to get in touch with me. What I do know is that the 23rd that O'Brien was a part of has a pretty famous list of alumni, including the late General Norman Schwarzkopf, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary of State Colin Powell, former Governor of Pennsylvania and Director of Homeland Security Tom Ridge, and Lieutenant William Calley. Halley is more infamous than famous, of course, as he led the division's subordinate 11th Infantry Brigade in the Milai Massacre, an episode that became one of the most notorious of the war. O'Brien, however, obviously went on to become a writer after his service in Vietnam and has spent most of his career writing fiction about the war. His first book, If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home, was published in 1973, and he has written several others, including Going After Cacciato, which won the National Book Award in 1978, The Nuclear Age in 1985, The Things They Carried in 1990, In the Lake of the Woods in 95, Tomcat and Love in 1998, and July, July in 2002. O'Brien's style is marked by a blurring of fiction and reality known as verisimilitude, which literally means a likeness of truth, and the things they carried is a great example of this, especially as it gets metatextual and directly addresses the idea of verisimilitude at times. But from what I gathered, he feels a need to tell the stories that he tells. In a New York Times article from April 3rd, 1990, entitled A Storyteller for the War That Won't End, O'Brien says, Quote, after each of my books about the war has appeared, I thought it might be the last, but I've stopped saying that to myself. There are just too many stories left to tell. In fact, more all the time. I suppose that for the sake of my career, I ought to turn, turn in another direction. And the novel I am working on now is about life in the north country of Minnesota. But I know more war stories will come out. They have to. The article, which I'll link to in the show notes, by the way, goes on to emphasize this, saying he tried to abort the impulse after he returned to Vietnam in 1970. He went back to political science, doing graduate work in government at Harvard University. I think I, I think I thought I might become the next Henry Kissinger, he said, before a brief stint as a reporter for the Washington Post. 
but the stories would not be stopped. So far, they have filled five books. His impression is that they are multiplying all the time in his head. He talks about them like an evangelist or a prophet. My life is storytelling, he said. I believe in stories and their incredible power to keep people alive, to keep the living alive and the dead. And if I have started now to play with the stories inside the stories themselves, well, that's what people do all the time. Storytelling is the essential human activity. The harder the situation, the more essential it is. In Vietnam, men were constantly telling one another stories about the war. Our unit lost a lot of guys around me lie, but the stories they told stay around after them. I would be mad not to tell the stories I know. I personally read the things they carried. I've read In the Lake of the Woods. I own a copy of Going After Cacciato, but I've yet to read it. Uh, Both of the ones I've read are excellent books, and I can very well say that O'Brien really is a master storyteller. Like I said, I'll post the New York Times piece in the show notes, as well as another New York Times piece called The Vietnam and Me, and a transcript from a lecture that O'Brien did called Writing Vietnam, as well as some of the other source material that I use for my background research, and you can explore it on your own as much as you like. So I wanted the bio portion of this episode to be brief so I could get to talking about the book, which I will do after this. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. What do I carry? I carry a lot of years that I feel that are and that's not all bad it's partly bad i I carry a what i think i probably was probably come through in this talk we've had today is a a kind of delight in in doing what i do and a believer in doing what i do along with a sadness about doing what i do um because two decades later i'm fielding many of the questions about war that I fielded all those years ago and think, oh my God, you know, that's sort of back where we were. And then some. That that's feels like a tangible burden. Um, but I carry with me these two kids I mentioned, and even though they're not physically here, they're they're all around me and the person I become. And they're living inside me. And uh I carry a slight uh, but palpable feel of of obligation to uh, do justice to the savagery I witnessed and the senselessness of it and the, the, um, the, the sadness of it. And it, it would... So that sense of obligation is with me, especially on occasions like this, like this one, where we're doing trying to talk lucidly about the stuff. 
just to, to do justice to Chip, my buddy, and to the ghosts of the the uh, dead Vietnamese and dead Americans, and especially their mothers and dads who are still bearing the burden, even though their kids are long dead, I doubt they go to sleep many nights without some poor woman in Orlando remembering her, her son of 40 years ago that she never got to ever hold again. And there, that's a pretty solemn, solemn obligation. That was Tim O'Brien himself talking about the things they carried. Like I said, you can find a link to that video in the show notes. Less of a novel and more of a collection of stories featuring the same characters, the book itself came out in 1990, with five of the stories contained within having been published in Esquire magazine in previous years. The title story, The Things They Carried, itself was published in 1987, and it was part of the Best American Short Stories 1987 collection. This book has been in print since it was first published more than 20 years ago, has won several awards, and was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. The book, as I said, is a collection of stories that features members of the same platoon, all fictional characters, men to whom O'Brien actually dedicated the book because he felt that having written about them for a good five years, they were real and part of his life. Many of the characters in the stories do have a basis in reality, as mentioned, and O'Brien is decidedly metatextual at times, especially when he creates a, a character for himself and narrates stories from the point of view of a fictional version of Tim O'Brien. Since the book isn't, con isn't a conventional novel, I'm not going to do a conventional plot summary. I'll do my best to cover everything, but I'll talk about it in an overview sort of way, giving a little bit of about themes and characters too. I may skip over a few stories, I might blow through a few of them because I want to hit the highlights, or at least go in depth with the stories that I enjoyed the most or that meant something to me. There are, in all, 21 stories in this book. They are in order. Titled, The Things They Carried, Love, Spin, On the Rainy River, Enemies and Friends, How to Tell a True War Story, The Dentist, The Sweetheart of the Song Tra Bong, Stockings, Church, The Man I Killed, Ambush, Style, Speaking of Courage, Notes, In the Field, Good Form, Field Trip, the Ghost Soldiers, Nightlife, and the Lives of the Dead. The title story, The Things They Carried, was the first story that I encountered, and it wasn't as part of this larger collection, but from a collection called the Breadloaf Anthology, which I was issued for one of my very first creative writing courses in college, probably intro to creative writing during my freshman year. It would actually be a number of years before I read all of the actual book version of the things they carried as I managed to snag a copy from the English department storeroom from the first school I ever taught at. And then I used several of those English those stories in my 11th grade English class, including this one. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and I want to make sure I focus on the story itself, which is one of those that never really leaves you. O'Brien introduces his characters in the context of what they carried with them, hence the title. And through the story, he also gives the details about one of their deaths over and over, being one of a few deaths that O'Brien will come back to as this book goes on. In fact, it's obvious that death is one of those things carried, and the objects become just as important as the feelings and everything else they carry with them. For instance, Lieutenant Jimmy Cross carries a photograph. He's the leader of the troop, and that becomes symbolic, well of a life back home and his mind and the mistakes he's making that get his men killed. In fact, at the end of the story, he burns the photo in an almost ritualistic sort of way. 
If this were a traditional novel, by the way, this would be a clever way to introduce the characters before the MacGuffin reveals itself. But this is not a plot-driven narrative, and the characters themselves are the main focus of the book. We get an illustration of these guys humping it through the jungle and the repeated memory of a specific trauma, implying that perhaps it's what you experience directly that has more of an impact than any astronomical figure of a number dead. Jimmy Cross, by the way, is the focus of Love, the book's second story. And that is where O'Brien first takes the audience beyond the war as he shows a conversation between Cross and himself, or the quote-unquote O'Brien of the book, years later, which sets off the other major theme of the book, which is that of telling war stories. He goes from love into spin, and is already contemplating the boring nature of war and how he's always writing war stories. I mean, not to embellish them, mind you, but because they are just, as I said when I talked about O'Brien's career, they just seem to be in him and need to get out. On the Rainy River continues to jump around the timeline, and it seems like it's the most personal of the stories, at least at this point. O'Brien tells the story of how he, uh, the fictionalized version of himself anyway, reacted to getting his draft notice. Basically what happens is that he gets completely terrified and he runs off, staying in a cabin on a lake in Minnesota near the Canadian border, whose caretaker is this older guy. We're supposed to get the idea that the old guy does know what O'Brien is thinking of doing, and at one point he, the, the two go fishing and the old guy takes him really far out, clearly passing into Canadian waters basically giving him the opportunity to leave. O'Brien never does, obviously. If he did, we'd never have the book, or we'd have a totally different book. But this is one of those stories that really gets inside the head of a soldier, or a kid. He doesn't seem necessarily to be making a point about what motivates a soldier. Instead, he's showing his humanity, the same way that he tells a story called Enemies, where two guys who get into a fight wind up making a promise to kill one another if seriously injured. And this is what a good war book, war novel will give you, the humanity of the soldier. Something that's not necessarily meant to make you love or hate the war per se, but something that is meant to make that soldier seem like a person. This book, like most truly excellent war novels, does that. And what we'll get as it goes on is both the horror of war and the reality of war, which are two different things. The horror of war, by the way, comes first in two stories that are two of my favorites in the entire book. The first one of these is called How to Tell a True War Story, which is not horror so much as it is a piece of metafiction that has a spooky story contained within it. That particular story's premise is that two characters are having an argument over a particular war story that they're telling, and the story is that about two guys were at a jungle listening post and kept hearing music, what sounded like a party, even though there was no way that could be possibly happening because there was no known settlement near any of them for miles. And basically what happens is that the two of them hear the sound so much and they practically go nuts listening to it. The metafictional part is the characters telling the story have an argument over what you actually do include in a good war story. The idea that you have to separate what actually happened from what seemed to happen somewhere in there is the truth, right? But when you think of it, is the truth all that necessary? My inner journalist just cringed at that question. But when you're referring to the concept of verisimilitude, you're referring to a, a likeness when it comes to the truth or reality. And we see this through much of the novel. 
I think what works very well is that he comes back to the same incidents over and over and over again, looking at them from different perspectives, placing significance on different things at different times. For instance, in stockings, we go back to the things the soldiers carried as the objects seem to take on a significance that goes beyond why it was important in the first place. So they're not just from like stockings a soldier was carrying because his girlfriend gave them to him and he remembers her from it. It's like they're part of him now and they're a reminder more of home or something, something a little greater. And in an odd little chapter called Church, you get a point about how intruding on holy ground, in this case a church, didn't feel right and that people have to be treated right despite the fact that you're fighting quite a number of them in a war. And then again, we see this, or like we see with the Nam, if you keep the scope of war on a few individual soldiers without feeling that you have to cover the whole war, you have a much fuller story of this experience. My favorite story, by the way, comes between how to tell a true war story and stockings. And this is the, is the sweetheart of the song Tra Bong. This is, well, this is as close to horror that O'Brien gets throughout the novel. And, well, it's, it's awesome. The premise is that Rat Kylie, one of the guys in O'Brien's platoon, has a story to tell. It's the story of Mark Fossey, a guy who arranged for his girlfriend, Marianne Bell, to come over to Vietnam and spend time with him, which, of course, is completely illegal. At first, when she shows there, it's a little awkward. But as time goes on, Marianne gets more and more acclimated to the daily life of the war, and then, well, she starts getting sucked in in a way that's almost frightening. It starts when she goes out on patrols with the special forces, who are themselves seen as a bit crazy. She eventually gets completely, completely involved to the point where she stands in front of Mark, her boyfriend, wearing a pink sweater and culottes, like a nice girl from back home, and a necklace made of human tongues. She then tells him that he doesn't fully understand this place. You're in a place, she tells him, where you don't belong. You just don't know. You hide in this little fortress behind wire and sandbags. You don't know what it's all about. Sometimes I want to eat this place, Vietnam. I want to swallow the whole country, the dirt, the death. I just want to eat it and have it there inside me. That's how I feel. It's like this appetite. I get scared sometimes, lots of times, but it's not bad, you know? I feel close to myself when I'm out there at night. I feel close to my own body. I can feel my blood moving, my skin and my fingernails. It's like everything. It's like I'm full of electricity and I'm glowing in the dark. I'm on fire almost. I'm burning away into nothing, but it doesn't matter because I know exactly who I am. You can't feel like that anywhere else. It's almost a, a tale of possession. And if you think about it, it honestly will creep you out. Especially when at the end of the story, she just disappears into the jungle. Almost as if she's become part of it. It's very creepy. And I'm going to use that moment to take a quick break. And we'll come back with more of the things they carried.
Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? Humans make illogical decisions. Destruction sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found Mrs. Spock. I'm talking to Mrs. Spock. You understand? Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Fire, Mr. Scott. Join Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, the two true freaks, every month for a new episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month you will get a classic episode of Star Trek the Original Series, a Star Trek comic, and who knows what else. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. So when we hit the man I killed, which, uh... Well, it's exactly about what the title of the story says about. <laughs> the things they carry becomes more personal than it was in any of the previous stories. And combined with Ambush, the next story, we get the story of something that has haunted his character since the war, and that is the image of a Viet Cong soldier that he killed, specifically the star-shaped hole that his bullet left in the guy's eye socket, which is an image that he comes back to over and over again throughout the rest of the book. More importantly, it gives the enemy a life and a personality in a way that we don't often get from our entertainment about war. Parody, memes, and expanded universe aside, your average Imperial stormtrooper is a nameless, faceless enemy without a backstory. When Han Solo guns one of them down, you don't feel anything for him. But the soldier that O'Brien guns down is a person who obviously had a life and identity, and even though he can't really talk about him, he seems to not be able to forget him. Like, he needs to know who this person is, just like he keeps revisiting death. I mean, of course he revisits death, because you can't have a novel about war without death. But throughout quite a few of the next stories, O'Brien goes back and forth between showing humanity, like in Style, whose enduring image is a, is a girl randomly dancing who basically just liked to dance, to coming back to death through stories about one of his army buddies, Norman Balker, in Speaking of Courage in Notes. In fact, those two stories are paired together because you get a vivid illustration of how the hard the war was to get over. Bowker spends his time at a lake in his hometown just driving around and thinking about how he would share stories with his father and, well, how stories are all he has and not ones that are pretty because 
Though O'Brien will keep coming back to the man he killed, he'll also come back to the death of another one of his fellow soldiers, the uh, American Indian soldier named Kiawa, who, he, as he says, quote, lost his head in a river of shit. Bowker, we find out in notes, committed suicide at the end of the story, and the story in the field is all about looking for Kiawa's body and mud and shit in the river and what goes on inside the lieutenant's head as they conduct the search, especially the regret he feels as he watches these guys pull a body out of this river piece by piece. Which, like the man he killed, is an image that will stick with you reading the book, especially since he'll come back to it in field trip just as he comes back to it in good form, which is an extension of ambush where O'Brien's daughter asks him about whether or not he killed a man, and he can't seem to shake that question. Field trip is their trip to Vietnam 20 years later, and he goes back to the river where Kiawa was killed, and they have to, had to fish out the pieces of his body. What I like about this particular story is that you get one person in it who is closest to myself or most of the people my age, and that is his daughter. She's a character who represents the next generation and serves to point out how much the country has changed even though the men who fought might not necessarily be able to. There's an image in Field Trip of the river being placid and ordinary, which is ironic considering how much death took place there. And it kind of reminds me of a Civil War battlefield. I used to work in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I had to drive across the Chancellorsville Battlefield National Park every day. And it's striking how scenic it is. And he's right. A place evolves. And so does our perception of it. Yes, something happened there. But his daughter sees it from a different perspective and does not have the memories he has or the story he has to tell. And these stories he keeps coming back to, of course. And O'Brien spends the last three stories in the book, The Ghost Soldiers, Nightlife, and the Lives of the Dead, telling some stories about his experience. Nightlife is about Rat Kylie, his unit's medic who basically goes nuts. The Ghost Soldiers is a story about how O'Brien got shot twice and the second time was reassigned, so the people he'd been spending so much time with started to become more and more distant as they spent time apart from him, like he's not a part of that unit anymore. He also spends a good time in the story talking about how he got revenge on a guy named Jorgensen, whose first mistake was got him shot. He pulls a prank involving trip flares that, to O'Brien, reveals a dark side that he never thought he had, and he even gets scared and, and at the potential he has for... I don't want to say evil per se, but there's definitely a potential to give into your own darkness sometimes. And it's one last beat of horror before what is a very poignant ending, and that is the lives of the dead. This is a story that brings us back to a lot of what we've already heard about. Those he knew who were dead, the stories he already told, and everything we've already seen. He also makes a point that stories can save us. And he tells the story of what was essentially his first date when he went to a movie when he was nine years old with a girl named Linda, a girl who had a tumor and who would eventually pass away. And he uses this as an example to show how, well, how you can keep the dead alive with stories, and juxtaposing the dead in the war with the death of this girl really helps drive home that point. Which is a somber way to end the book. But the book isn't meant to have a happy ending, because when you think of it, Vietnam didn't have a happy ending. And I think that in his relating these tales, O'Brien does an excellent job at showing the soldier for who he was, getting aside his head, and really giving a full human picture of what young men like him went through. If you've been paying attention to my nonsensical rambling about the things they carried, and you're interested in tracking down a copy of the book and reading it, 
it's still in print. It's very easy to find. It is available digitally. Most public libraries probably have a copy. In fact, the copy uh, that I read for this was out of my public library, and it was an ebook. And you can buy it on Amazon, both in paperback for the Kindle. If you choose to buy it, please go to twotruefreaks.com. Click the Amazon sales link. It will really help out some great podcasts. If you're interested in the music that was played throughout the episode, uh, that was the song Goodnight Saigon, written by Billy Joel and performed by Billy Joel on his Nylon Curtain album, which came out in 1982. Uh, you can download that on iTunes or Amazon. Next time around, I'll be back in the NOM with the second year of Doug Murray's run of the title, starting with the NOM issue number 14. Until then, thanks for stopping by and listening to this special episode, and take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.